You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining us, as always, is your friend and mine from MMA Junkie in USA Today. It's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm all right. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Yeah? Yeah. You know it's National Coffee Day? I did. I already heard the story about how you went to an actual coffee shop just for the express purpose that they were going to give you free coffee. Free coffee what? Because I, which I think actually only it underscores my point, right? That the reason that you go to the truck stop to get your coffee is that you're miserly. And on this day, you were able to get free coffee. So you upgraded to the good stuff. First of all, I didn't know that they were going to give me a free coffee on National Coffee Day. Uh, but, um, I will say, I don't know if you've ever perused an airport bookstore, my man, but if you have, you'll no doubt find one of those books that tells you how to become a millionaire. Uh, I'm pretty sure, like, step 17 is getting your coffee at the gas station. So uh, not all of us signed big, huge book deals this past week. With you driving around in your Rolls Royce, popping bottles of champagne, some of us have to scrape by with our coffee. Yep, just me and Conor McGregor wearing our custom suits and eating our 64-ounce steaks that are served on stones, driving around in our Ferraris. How much you make? How much you make for this book deal? Tell us, Chad. Well, I'm not going to tell you that here on the radio, but I can the internet <laughs> so radio. You're not even going to like how, give us a disclosed payout. How about that? Disclosed payout, Anderson Silva money. Oh, wow. How about that? Wow. So that's a pretty big deal for me. If you don't know out there and you don't follow me on Twitter, and if you don't, I don't understand what your problem is. But uh, I signed a book deal this past week. Sold my uh, first novel, Champion of the World to uh gp putnam and sons publisher an imprint of uh penguin the penguin group what so, happened to the title i thought I, th- I liked uh the toughest man on earth the original title. that was the original title but you know how the publishing industry works man they they change stuff up they do did they change any of the actual the the substance of the work no not really we've okay, got a little good. bit of editing to still do uh the book doesn't come out until 2016 but uh it tells the story of a 1920s carnival wrestler and his card sharp wife who get marooned in a Oregon timber camp by a, uh, a scheming carnival owner, and then they have to join up as as part of a plan to train a disgraced former wrestler for what they hope is a shot at the world heavyweight championship. And I don't I don't want to do too many spoilers, Ben. Right. But things are not as they seem. Oh no. Things do not work out as planned. Well, I've read this book, and I can tell everybody listening to the podcast right now. It is actually really, really good. It'll, I mean, I know you hear Chad on this show and you think, God, he sounds borderline illiterate. Uh, and I know I, th- I thought the same thing when I first met him, but, uh, somehow, uh, the book is good. I don't know if he, uh, he killed a traveling, uh, raconteur and stole his transcript or t- stole his manuscript and passed it off as his own. I assume that's what happened here. Uh, but, uh, I look forward to reading it, assuming I'm still alive in 2016. Assuming we all are. Assuming yeah. Western civilization as we know it still stands. Do you think they'll still be publishing books then? Is you, are you, you going to be the last one? I don't care if they are still publishing books. I only care that they are still publishing one book. <laughs> How about if they're still publishing checks and if those checks clear? That's that's what I say. We're going out to dinner after this? Yeah. Yes. We'll go get those steaks that they serve on stones. Cool. I've heard cool. those are good. You put butter or whatever on it and just sizzles. 
Ben, this week's music for the co-main event podcast comes from listener slash singer slash songwriter Kevin Foster. He just put out, put out an EP on iTunes, and uh, he says, quote, all other digital avenues musicians sell their music on. And uh, his website is kevdfoster.com. We'll put up a link to that when this episode gets posted. It's three rounds, as usual, for the co-main event podcast this week. In round number one, UFC President Dana White proclaims Conor McGregor the biggest star in UFC history. Bigger than Brock Lesnar, bigger than George St. Pierre, bigger than Ronda Rousey. In related news, we've all apparently gone fucking crazy. And in round number two, speaking of crazy, Yoel Romero, everybody. He punched me in the face. And in round three, after fighting for two years just to get to the UFC, Eddie Alvarez showed up looking tiny and one-dimensional and got beat up pretty bad by Donald Cerrone. Bummer. Bummer. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but like we do every week about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Matt from Winnipeg. So that's kind of like a, that's an old school co-main event podcast email emailer like handle yeah i wish people would go back to doing that I do for one too. thing it spares you from trying to pronounce their last names or for another thing gives us we don't have to always like try to see whether they put a u in favorite to try and guess where the hell right. they're from yeah yeah it gives us sort of an international flair don't you yeah. think yeah plus something from the peg of course we're gonna read that uh go blue bombers by the way uh matt from winnipeg writes how awesome is kat zingano with her impressive win this past saturday do you think she has what it takes to beat ronda rousey um i'm gonna come out and say uh i felt i i watched this pay-per-view late night i had an event on saturday night so i couldn't come over to your house to watch it apologies by the way to the co-main event faithful who probably were expecting a ufc 178 audio extra from us to land in their inboxes they that didn't night. know that big time published author chad dunnas probably had to go to some goddamn literary cocktail party had to dvr the fights come home take off his tux with the tails hang it up just in time to, to check in on those fights see if they still do that fighting stuff he used to cover but go on you were uh, saying. I, I watched it late night fast forwarded through a lot of the downtime but uh first of all i felt like ufc 178 was amazing it was pretty great it was it was really awesome all the fights were great um, I felt like in the aftermath of it, Kat Zingano has been kind of overlooked because of the media hurricane that is Conor McGregor and the weird stuff between Yoel Romero and Tim Kennedy and because Eddie Alvarez underwhelmed a little bit in his UFC debut. But like as I watched it, I actually thought Kat Zingano, Amanda Nunez was like maybe the most entertaining fight to watch. I felt like Kat Zingano's performance was uh, outstanding, and I, I felt like she got passed over a little bit in terms of like the post-fight bonuses. Like, uh, yeah, I definitely thought, could have been fight of the night. I thought she was going to get one. Um, obviously, she has that tough first round coming back after like 18 months off. She blew out her knee. She hurt her other knee. Her husband committed suicide. She's she's been mired in this personal tragedy that that like. Uh, it's hard to even talk about without feeling exploitive, yeah. kind of. But, uh, you know, she comes out and she has this excellent performance against Amanda, Amanda Nunez, uh, and, and, you know, has a rough first round, but then comes back to, to win the second and, and then score a TKO in the third. Um, I was really, really impressed with Kat Zingano. I like her all around skill set. Uh, and you know what else I like about her? She has a little edge to her. Fuck yeah, she does. Yeah, that was, that was pretty awesome when, uh, Joe Rogan asked her if she thought she was in trouble. 
in round number one, and she uh, she she answered basically sounded like a long haul trucker. She was like, "Fuck yeah!" <laughs> it was it was. She did a great post fight interview. Um, I really I really like Kat Zingano, but uh, I was kind of fired up to see her fight Ronda Rousey. I think she's the right person to fight Ronda Rousey. And then I looked at that picture of her on the internet today that I sent to you, but you didn't yes. respond to it. I did respond to it. Oh, I didn't see that. Uh, it's a picture of you. If, if you're out there listening to the co-main event, do this now. Go online, Google Kat Zingano, Ronda Rousey. Click on the Google image search, and you will see a picture from MMA Weekly of them standing next to each other as part of a press event. And you will see regular-sized women's bantamweight fighter Kat Zingano, and you will see enormous fucking giant Ronda Rousey standing <laughs> next to her. See, if you'd seen my response when you sent that to me, I said, I assume Ronda Rousey is wearing her, her huge... High heels that could uh, be. for fight night. That could be. Because she, she does look even taller than Kat than you would think. Yeah, because in this she picture. She kind of towers over her. Yeah. Also, after you Google that, Google dog and horse that are friends. It's it's a little lighthearted yeah. one. That, to uh, Kat Zingano's head barely comes up to like Ronda Rousey's chin in this picture. You're right. Ronda Rousey could be wearing like eight inch heels and maybe Kat Zingano rolls out flats. there yeah. in a pair of sensible flats. She just but fought. just from sheer phys- physicality, like... This doesn't seem like it's going to go well for Kat Zingano right. once you, you know, see I, the two of them together. That was my kind of first reaction uh, to this question, the, the two parts of this question. How awesome did Kat Zingano look? Pretty awesome. Pretty rad in there, uh, except, except for the first round. She does seem to have a problem of starting a little too slow, which if you do that against Ronda Rousey, you may not get a chance to uh, kick it into the next gear. Uh, but do I think she has a chance against Rousey? Not really. I think Ronda Rousey wins that one, probably wins it in the first round. I still think it's an interesting fight for her. I mean, I think Zangano is somebody who, you have to say, has earned it. We, we clearly see her, her toughness in both this fight and the Misha Tate fight, where she's kind of getting beat up a little bit. Looks like it's going really, really bad for her. And then she finds a way to get back in there and win it uh, and has some kind of uh, creative techniques that she employs in there. So I'm interested to see her and Ronda Rousey. I mean, I think it's a... It, it's a fight that makes sense, but I also think we're probably going to come away from it the same way we have the last few Ronda Rousey fights going, well, damn, there's nobody who's even really close to her. She's just way better than everybody. Yeah, she's definitely the most skilled person in that weight class. She definitely has uh, the the best uh, athletic base, I guess you could say, in the weight class. She's got that kind of preternatural judo skill because her mom was arm barring her before she could walk. And uh, she also is, as I said, physically much larger than most of the people in that weight class. And when that's your skill set, when your skill set is that you go out there and grab a hold of somebody and then go through your just child prodigy style uh, judo takedown chain, um, that's going to work when you are <laughs> yes. twice the size yes, of everyone else. Clearly. So I think you're right. I think if she gets a hold of Kat, and Kat's Ngano, like really well-rounded, looks good on the feet, uh, tagged Amanda Nunez with that standing elbow, I think in the second round, which was just nasty, and then ended up taking her down and kind of riding it, riding it out from there and punishing her from the top. But uh, yeah, I just see Rousey getting a hold of her and then she's going to go for the ride. And, and once that happens, you know, very few people make it back to the feet with two, Two working arms. Yeah. It'll be an interesting fight, though. I'm interested to oh, see yeah, it. Oh, yeah. I definitely want to see it. Uh, UFC 182 in early January, I believe. Um, next question this week comes from Santiago Matthews. He writes, I was blown away by Dominic Cruz tonight. Since you're already going to, I would like to ring the bell. Discuss! Exclamation point. Yeah, you got to say, I mean, I was the guy saying, you know, let's not expect too much out of Dominic Cruz. Let's let him get back in there at his own pace, work his way in there, you know. 
get get reacquainted with his surroundings. And then he comes out there in 61 damn seconds, Chad, and just runs through Takeya Mizugaki. I mean, obviously, Mizugaki, not the absolute best guy in the division, but he was on a pretty good win streak here. Uh, you know, has a, a pretty good record. And even when he does get beat, you know, he doesn't really just get blown out of the water like that. He, he'll usually lose a decision. I think he's been stopped once in the first round, and that was a, a choke to Uriah Faber. And Dominic Cruz just blew him away. Wore him around like a hat. Yes. Dominic, like Cruz, Dominic Cruz looked amazing. I did, while you were talking, I just look at, uh, Takeo Mizugaki's, uh, fight history to see if that was the, f- the fastest he'd ever been finished. I assumed that it was. And oh yeah, big time. As you said, his only other, I think even stoppage loss was that fight to Uriah Faber. He has one other TKO 52. loss earlier in his career. Uh, but yeah. Uriah Faber choked him out in four, four minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, oh, he does. He has a, a TKO loss to Kenji Osawa at Shuto 2006, that uh, 59 seconds into the second round. Um, but yeah, Dominic Cruz, the footwork is still there, which you could see yep. pretty much right off the bat. He ducked uh, Mizugaki's first punch, and it was kind of like, oh, damn, he yes, can, he's still got it. Yeah. And uh, he the mo- the mobility is still there. Um, I'm, I'm glad that they're going to put him straight into a fight with TJ Dillashaw because that, I think... A is going to be an amazing fight, and uh, B would be an incredible story if Dominic Cruz manages to come back and get his title back in that fight. And C, that you know, that could be the kind of like the fight and the storyline that maybe the bantamweight division needs to Absolutely. have the former champ come back and and take on a guy who, frankly, looks kind of like the new version of him. Right. There's so many interesting things to that fight. I mean, for one, you know, the the old champ who never lost his title coming back after three years away. Uh, fighting a guy who's from a camp that he has uh, a personal history with, that he has a little bit of a personal animosity with, already burned them by calling him Team Alpha Fail. <laughs> you know, the, the boys down at the, the gym spent all night thinking of that one. Uh, you know, so you got all that stuff going on. But then you also had the fact that, like you said, Dillashaw, and has admitted as much, kind of took some of uh, Dominic Cruz's techniques, incorporated them into his game with great effect. Uh, and now, you know, it's like, He's the, the 2.0 version of that style, and he's going to have to go up against the OG of it. Uh, and we're also, I think it's interesting to see that, you know, Dominic Cruz was the champ three years ago, back when the bantamweight division had a bunch of dudes who were waiting for the UFC to start up a flyweight division. Uh, and so it's interesting to see him three years later kind of going in there and doing the same thing. Is it going to work against the dudes three years later who have been, you know, evolving and changing presumably since then? Uh, or is he going to find that, you know, being the old Dominic Cruz isn't quite enough anymore, especially against a guy like TJ Dillashaw, who might have taken that style and, and made some refinements to it, or who knows, maybe even he makes it be- work better than Dominic Cruz himself does. I mean, I think all that stuff is really interesting, and it gives us, you know, the most intriguing bantamweight fight that we've seen yet since the UFC started the division, uh, which I assume means that uh, Dominic Cruz will blow out both knees right about now? Yeah, but we better check for some breaking news before we go on. I think that you're right to like, and you were right, frankly, before this fight to kind of plead for calm in our expectations for Dominic Thank Cruz. You. Thank you very much. And, uh, you're right that there are a lot of interesting storylines heading into a potential, uh, you know, chance to get his title back against TJ Dillashaw. Hard to doubt him though, after watching him go out there and, and just wear Takeo Mizugaki out. Like he looked, if anything, and, and maybe, you know, level of competition can, we can attribute some of this to level of competition, but if anything, he looked like the best version of Dominic Cruz that we have seen. And, uh, it would be hard, I think, to, to not like him in a fight against a, a guy who you're right, TJ Dillashaw is, part of this new wave of bantamweights, but is also a guy who like came out of nowhere to beat Hennon Barrow, 
and then his first title defense against the relatively unheralded Joe Soto. So like DJ Dillashaw has, has his own stuff going on. Like you could say he's an unproven champion who, uh, has never fought anyone on the order of Dominic Cruz. I got to say, though, a uh, little word to referee Chris Tognani in that one uh, in the Cruz-Mizugaki fight. What are you waiting for there, guy? You, you, you're trying to see if Cruz can punch the guy's head straight through the chain link fence there? Did you see that? I mean, how many unanswered blows? The guy's got his arm trapped, can't defend his head, and is just getting his, his face jacked up against the fence until... You know, his body finally gives way and just sinks slowly into the mat. I feel like that one could have maybe been stopped a little sooner than it was. Well, Dominic Cruz needed to get some work in, my yeah, man. It's yeah. been a while since he was out there. Yeah, those those extra six seconds worth of just defenseless face punching are really going to pay off, I'm sure. Also, note to whatever referee draws the short straw of trying to referee Dominic Cruz versus TJ Dillashaw, bring your running shoes. Yeah. You better be working on your cardio right now. Bring your legs with you. Uh, the next question this week comes from John Joe Carter. He writes, I'm going to go ahead and assume you fellas aren't going to spend a whole round talking about Demetrius Johnson's complete and utter dismantling of Chris Carriasso. Correct. That's correct. Uh, so can we take a moment to consider just how much better DJ is than his opponents these days? Okay. Okay, now that that's over, what's next for the 125-pound champ? It's hard to imagine anyone having the combination of speed and endurance required to keep up with Johnson, let alone mount any effective offense against him, plus a quote-unquote super fight with 135, at 135 pounds with TJ Dillashaw seems to be on the table for now, with or seems off to be table. off the table for now with Dana confirming Dominic Cruz would be the next, to fight, next guy to fight Dillashaw. Is there anyone in the UFC right now who you want to see in a fight with Mighty Mouse? Uh, they need to do some work on this division. Like, uh, they, they, like, I, they need to get some flyweights out there, some top level flyweights to provide some, some, uh, competition for Do- Demetrius Johnson because. How do you do that? What do you start hanging around the, the racetrack to get some jockeys and see if you can train them in the MMA? Local boys and girls club, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just saying, like, when you think about Demetrius Johnson, he, for all intents and purposes, appears to be a perfect, perfect fighter. Like, there appears to be nothing wrong with him. He appears to be good at everything. He's a super nice guy. He just, I think, happens to lack whatever extra personality trait it is that a guy like Dominic or a guy like uh, Dustin, Dustin, well, now who am I talking about? Conor McGregor. He lacks the the uh, the personality flair that makes obviously Conor McGregor so damn memorable that I just yes. totally forgot his name. Uh, he you know he lacks like a built-in fan base like George St. Pierre had. It doesn't seem like it's it's helping that the UFC has basically given up on him. It seems. You well, see all the embedded stuff this week. It's yeah. like you barely got a glimpse of Demetrius Johnson. The, the most airtime he got was when he went to get a shave, and that's when he's just like sitting quietly in a barber chair with his eyes closed. Uh, you know, the, that billboard that we pointed out in the Breakfast of Champions email that's on the Vegas Strip doesn't even, you know, advertising UFC 178. Not only does it not show Demetrius Johnson's picture, the dude in the main event, doesn't even mention it. Doesn't, you wouldn't even know that he's fighting. So it seems like the UFC has just gone, well, screw it. Yeah. I mean, that can't be helping him in that regard. He hasn't got a ton of help. And I think putting him into weird matchups against guys like Chris Carriasso, uh, don't, that doesn't really help either. Uh, I think, you know, we, we guess I, we have to take them at their word that that was Chris Carriasso that showed up to fight that fight. Yeah. I couldn't say with 100% certainty. It could have been on any number of guys who would just go out there and end up getting worked by Demetrius Johnson. Yeah. You know, a bunch of people failed our quiz, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't see too many people bragging about how they nailed it. Let's just put it that way. That's true. And you got to take into consideration that half the people bragging that they nailed it are lying. That's right. And so few people did that, I assume. 
nobody got it nobody got it right um the weird thing about demetrius johnson though is that like he doesn't seem like a lost promotional cause right he has several stoppages in his last few fights now he seems like a super nice guy he seems like a decent interview like i would have to imagine that there's got to be something interesting going on over there at amc pancration with matt hume in seattle because that's matt hume one of the like old school pioneers of of modern mixed martial arts and a guy who frankly was kind of ahead of his time uh in terms of 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 fusing a bunch of different styles together and being a a really good and really intelligent MMA fighter like so far the, the most interesting thing though seems that all white gym they train in looks like a like a the padded room and in an insane asylum an old-timey insane asylum I mean there's just got to be something happening there it seems like some intrepid journalist could go over there and knock out a feature about the sorcerer's apprentice uh <laughs> but you know Nobody's nobody's going to click it so nobody's going to do that. That's true. And uh which is a shame for Demetrius Johnson. So uh you know maybe he needs uh, an opponent. Maybe he needs like a big time feud, somebody that's going to come along and push him. It seemed like John Dodson was on the verge of being that guy and then and then blew his knee out and is out for a year. But uh maybe I mean Demetrius Johnson like he doesn't seem to really lack any qualities that that could make a guy a popular fighter and and I don't I don't fully believe that just being 125 pounds discounts you from popular appeal. Uh, I just think maybe he needs uh, competition. Yeah, you know, when you were we were talking about the question of, you know, who would you like to see him fight next and uh, how how perfect he's been, my mind went immediately to uh, John Dodson because that's the only time I've seen uh, Mighty Mouse that I can recall being kind of vulnerable for at least a moment or two in a fight when, you know, Dodson kind of caught him with a pretty good shot. Uh, looked like, okay, we, we might be about to see him tested, but he, he recovered very well, was right back in it, uh, and went right back to work and kind of wore Dodson down in the later rounds. And so it seemed like, you know, that was maybe the most interesting thing that we could see happen there. But, you know, you, you get into this point, you can't just do this rematches over and over and over again at Flyweight. It can't just be like a, a same thing where it's Demetrius Johnson versus either John Dodson uh, or Joseph Benavidez over and over again. Like, he, I mean, people are going to get sick of that, and it's already not really moving a ton of units for the UFC. So, you know, you got to come up with something different. I mean, there are a couple other guys out there uh, that you could talk about. I mean, John Lineker, uh, you know, that that might be an interesting one. Uh, Zach Makovsky, you know, maybe at some point in the future. But you're right that nobody really jumps out to you. It seems like this would be a great opportunity for somebody who wanted to change their life at 125 pounds to jump up there, put your finger in Demetrius Johnson's chest, uh, win a couple fights, make weight, and uh, who knows? You know, maybe the UFC says, fine, you get to be the next one up. But I don't know. Maybe people aren't exactly uh, enthusiastic for that opportunity right now, given how good he is. Yeah, you could do a little bit worse, I think, than to have him put in that rematch with John Dodson. Maybe even John Dodson wins that, and then you go to a trilogy, which I think would probably be your best-case scenario for the flyweight division right now. But you're right. If Demetrius Johnson beat John Dodson again and then fought somebody like John Lineker, who, you know, is a guy who who has that knockout ability and, and therefore, you, you know, you'd think you could do something promotable with him. But if Demetrius Johnson beats those two guys in a row, then, yeah, then I think you're in some trouble and you do start having to think about either a super fight or maybe someone else comes out of the blue to uh, to challenge the guy. But I feel bad for him at this point because he's really been a workhorse for the UFC. This was like his fifth defense of his title, I think, since winning it a couple years ago. He's had three fights in nine months. Uh, for a while, it seemed like they had him really tabbed to like main event those Fox shows and to kind of be a, a, a network TV and maybe cable TV uh, main event guy. And then now he's had two pay-per-views in a row. And it just seems like the poor guy can't get any traction anywhere. And, and I think that, that, that it's kind of complicated as to why that's happened. 
Yeah, and pretty soon. I mean, if we can't convince some uh, old-timey racehorse jockeys to, to come over here and fight the guy, we're looking at uh, Demetrius Johnson versus a big, scary dog, uh, which, frankly, uh, you know, I feel like I could identify a big, scary dog a lot easier than I could Chris Curioso. Next question comes this week from Dan Lintern. He writes, does it really make a difference for World Series of Fighting to offer its fighters a slice of pay-per-view revenue when no one actually is going to buy that bollocks? Is it just a way to get some press on the day it was announced, it's going to end. Uh, it's going up against the UFC and, and Bellator. Uh, so I'm going to guess uh, yeah, the, the British Isles, yeah. somewhere in the British Isles British here. Isles, for yes. Dan Linton, uh, I'm going to say shocking lack of punctuation there in the end. Manchester. Okay, I, yeah. I know nothing about that that city, but I know that it is one, and it is located in the British Isles. You know, the weirdest thing to me about World Series of Fighting announcing that they've got this revenue-sharing plan with their fighters, that they're going to split pay-per-view money 50-50, uh, has been the reaction. It, like, they, they caught some negative reaction, and even this, this listener mail email is kind of uh, cheeky, if I could maybe <laughs> borrow another adjective that could be popular uh, in the British Isles. Uh, about how no one's going to order it, nobody's going to make any money. And it just, to me, it's kind of telling about this sport that we all like that, and that you and I report on about the state of it, that a 50-50 revenue share between management and talent would raise any eyebrows at all. Because for most big-time American sports, that is the constant. Like, that's just normal. A 50-50 revenue share between the athletes and the management. And the fact that... uh that World Series of Fighting coming out and having that plan would kind of blow people's hair back and make them be like, wow, that's revolutionary. Like, that's a sad commentary on the sport, I think. Well, I don't know if it's all a commentary on the sport. I think that uh, some of it is, you know, we've seen the way things go with other promotions, right? Like, how many promotions have tried at one point or another when they're trying to compete with the UFC or trying to just, you know, improve their position as the not number one fight organization have tried to go the route of, Hey, we're the one that cares about the fighters, or we're the one that takes care of the fighters. You know, the IFL did it, uh, saying, oh, we're the, we give them health insurance, and we give them a stipend to live on, and that kind of stuff. Uh, you've seen, you know, other organizations try that at various times. Uh, the one that comes to mind now is Titan FC, which you see running around with the hashtag fans fighters first, which doesn't make any damn sense because they can't both be put first. They're two different populations, fans and fighters. You can only put one of them first. That's what first means. Uh, but you know, we see this where different organizations have, have kind of tried this and saying, all right, here's look what we're doing, uh, to care for the fighters and expecting that to result in a bunch of goodwill from fans. And I think fans have gotten kind of cynical about that. I think they're especially cynical. When an organization that is struggling to get people to watch them on cable TV says, pay-per-view, and we all have like, man, we've seen this before. When you start trying to make that move to pay-per-view and you're not really there yet, it usually means disaster is a-coming. And I think that's what people are looking at here with World Series of Fighting, that they immediately are trying to, to seek out the ulterior motives or something like this. And I don't think they're wrong to do that. Yeah, and uh, I think you you were right to be like to be suspect of of independent MMA organizations and their staying power. Uh, and I think that this is some good publicity for World Series of Fighting, an organization that has been criticized by its fighters in in recent months as maybe not living up to the uh, the expectations and the commitments that it made before they signed their their deals. And that's what you hear all the time. You hear that from managers and fighters all the time, and they're always talking about like, hey. 
if you sign a guy to World Series of Fighting, even if you sign him for a pretty good money and for a pretty good deal, you just don't know if you're going to get the number of fights they say you will. Right. And but I mean, I guess my point is like if they're if they're on the level with this idea to split revenue 50-50 with the athletes, that strikes me as something that we should all be able to get behind. I mean, uh maybe the best reason to order a World Series of Fighting pay-per-view is that you believe that the athletes are going to get a, a bigger cut of the money that they would get in fighting for other organizations. Would you have to think it has to be a big part of their motivation, right? Is because what is going to convince you to buy a World Series of Fighting pay-per-view? You know, it, they can't sell it necessarily just on the fights they've got on tap alone just because, you know, they don't have the huge names that the UFC has. They don't even have some of the big names that Bellator has. So you got to come up with something, right? Like, and this idea of like, hey, if you're giving your money to us, you're also kind of sort of giving a little bit of money to your fighters a little more directly than just hoping that we'll pay them after we get paid. Uh, and I think that, you know, maybe there, like, if you want a reason to buy a World Series of Fighting pay-per-view and you're on the fence, I guess that is a pretty good boost to get you over to the other side and get you to, to pull the trigger on it. Um, I just don't know if there's going to be a ton of money left over for those guys because we're talking about net revenues, right. uh, yeah. according the, to what World Series of Fighting says, which who knows what that really necessarily means. That That's the big question. And, you know, you'd have to have a, a mathematic genius uh, greater than I to but it would be interesting. Nonsense. Yeah. It would be interesting to figure out like how many papers. God damn it. You just kicked your mic again. No, I didn't even make it through the first segment this time. It would be interesting to figure out how many pay-per-view buys it would take in order to get World Series of Fighting guys more money than they would otherwise make as undercard or uh, you know, supporting card guys in the UFC, because that's actually kind of a big deal. Like yeah, if, if it okay. only takes, you know, if, if they hit a hundred thousand pay-per-view buys and suddenly some guy on the undercard who was previously going to make eight and eight is suddenly making 15 and 15, like that, that's, you know, that's, that's a big deal for those guys, man. Yeah, that, that would like, be significant. And I, I mean, I think it's one of those things where we can speculate all we want. We would have to see how it actually plays out. Uh, and we, you know, one of the good parts, I guess, is that as we've seen, fighters are a lot less worried about, uh, speaking out when they feel mistreated by one of the smaller organizations like World Series of Fighting. Like, people are reluctant to talk about, especially with the UFC, uh, money issues, like how much they're making, about fighter pay, because they know that that is a lightning rod and that will bring the wrath of the UFC down upon them. Uh, and, you know, especially when it's one of the stars, we've seen already the predictable way it's playing out with the Vanderlei Silva situation where, Oh man, dude complained about fighter pay. Here comes Dana White gonna get out all the old pay stubs and tell us exactly what the dude made. Uh, but with those other organizations, they're not so afraid of that. So if they feel like they're getting stiffed on it or like that money is not showing up, they're gonna, they're gonna let us know afterwards, I think. So it will be interesting to see how that part of it plays out. Agreed. I was just a little surprised with all the negative reaction. And, uh, to me, the big story here should be why is that? you know, a revolutionary idea. Why are other larger MMA organizations that assumedly do make millions of dollars off their pay-per-view revenue, why do they not have a 50-50 split with the athletes? And indeed, in those other organizations that hold their financial information so close to the vest, what is the revenue split? 
So that that's all interesting stuff to think about. Uh, that's going to do it for listener mail this week, though. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the, uh, in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. While you're there, you could sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday to fill you in on the information, news, and notes that we miss from Monday to Monday when we're not recording the podcast. For right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Riding away Think about the sound of my last track Trying not to fall into flashback And say what I want to say Well, Ben... Conor McGregor's deja vus and his visions just keep coming true. As Saturday night at UFC 178, it took him just a tick longer than a minute and 45 seconds to dust poor Dustin Glenn Poirier by TKO. At this point, the UFC is flying him down to Brazil to take in the featherweight title match between Jose Aldo and Chad Mendez. And, uh... It seems likely that McGregor may well get hot-shotted straight into a 145-pound title fight against the winner of that bout. Uh, we know that he has an electric personality. He looks every bit the star every time you put him in front of the camera and put a microphone in his face. But my opening question to you is, does that strike you as too much too soon for Conor McGregor, the fighter? You know, I don't know what you'd do with him. At this point, if you don't want to put him in a title fight, because it seems like uh, we're all still waiting, right? We're still, every time he fights, he knocks somebody out. Okay, he's answered some questions, but could he beat this guy? Could he beat, you know, and I feel like we've done that long enough. If if the UFC is going to build him up to be this huge star, and obviously they are, because you got Dana White claiming that he's bigger than Brock Lesnar and bigger than GSP. Thankfully, he did not say literally bigger than Brock Lesnar and GSP, because you know how much he likes to misuse that word. Uh, but... You know, if the UFC is going to claim that he's this big superstar and they're going to obviously treat him like he's a big superstar, then damn it, let's find out. Let's go ahead and throw him in there right now and let's find out if he is championship material. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like there's no problem with that. You got Cub Swanson and Frankie Edgar going to do it in Austin here in a couple months to to figure out some other things in the featherweight division. I say that's fine. You know, maybe that could, that'll set us up for whatever happens down the road there. But uh, whoever comes out of Jose Aldo and Chad Mendez, it seems like the fight to make there is Conor McGregor. Otherwise, you're just kind of treading water, aren't you? So you are just going to opt for the shortest distance between two points here. Like, you just want to find out. You just want poor Conor McGregor undressed as quickly as possible, dispatched back on the on the tram to the fictional country of Ireland. I mean, if he uh, loses, I don't see that that's not a disaster. He's 26 years old, right? I mean, if he goes in there, say say Jose Aldo retains his title against Chad Mendez, which is not necessarily a given. That's a tough fight. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, even though Conor McGregor seems to have zeroed in on Chad Mendez uh, and not Jose Aldo. It seems like, I don't know if he thinks that, that, that he's going to win, but he's already calling him a shrimpy bodybuilder and a little short ass, uh, which is kind of awesome. But, uh, you know... Say Jose Aldo comes out of that one still the champion and say that, you know, he can actually turn around and defend that title in a reasonable time span, uh, you know, like six months from now or something. Uh, you know, the fight in October 25th, say he could turn around in February or something uh, and defend that title again. I don't see any problem with putting Conor McGregor in that. If he loses, you know, you, you put him back in the featherweight pack, he's still as magnetic a personality 
He'll if he can win some more fights, he'll be back there pretty quickly. I just don't see why you'd you'd feed him to somebody else just to to what keep keep the things moving in somewhat of an orderly fashion. You know that's the fight you want to make. If you put him in against somebody else in the featherweight division, we'll obviously all know that you're hoping Conor McGregor wins uh, so that you can put him in a title fight. Like let's just do it now. What are we waiting for? Those are all solid points. Um, I guess you could call me old-fashioned. I will. Uh, I would like to see Conor McGregor fight at least one guy who would try to take him down before we go ahead and load him on the catapult and shoot him into a title shot. Uh, and and far before we start uh, sounding the trumpet about how he's the biggest star in the UFC and all this other stuff, you know, he came out. 10% and- of the tickets sold in Ireland, Chad. It's like a thousand tickets. Yeah, wow. Uh, he came out and, and beat the bricks off Dustin Poirier for sure. But at the same time, like we talked about last week on this show, Dustin Poirier kind of did what maybe we expected him to do and came out and, and, you know, ran right into Conor McGregor's offense and ended up getting knocked out. Uh, he rang him up a couple times. Dustin Poirier landed some nice shots because Conor McGregor has that weird karate stance where he flies his chin up there like a signal flag. Uh, Conor McGregor got punched a couple times. He ended up knocking Dustin Poirier out. Um, I just think that the guy remains really unproven. He's cracked into the top featherweight top five now. Uh, I understand what you're saying, but, uh, it seems kind of weird for him to be, uh, ranked one, two, three, three spots ahead of Dennis Bermudez to me on the okay, featherweight so, rankings. So what would you I do? Would, would you, you put him up there with Dennis Bermudez? If I'm trying to make money off the guy, I have him fight for the title. If, okay. I'm at, if, I'm, if I'm sitting at home on my couch trying to figure out who's the best fighter in the world, I'd like to see Conor McGregor fight somebody like Dennis Bermudez. I'd like to see him fight somebody like Ricardo Lamas. I'd like to see him fight somebody like Frankie Edgar, even though Frankie Edgar obviously already has a, a, a fight booked. Hell, I'd like to see him fight somebody like Nick Lentz. Let's see how that goes. You know the UFC will never do that. They'll never take a chance like that to put him up there against somebody like Nick Lentz, the goddamn Carney. Come on, man. I know. I just and you know Conor McGregor has this electric personality. Like I said at the top, he's a star. It's hard not to watch the guy when he comes out there in his ivory suit with his green tie and his and he's wearing his sunglasses inside. His damn Axl Rose. He's got a weird samurai top knot going on up on top of his head. Uh, but it feels to me like we're kind of getting caught up in the wash here a little bit. Like we're just all, uh, in awe of this guy's ability to, to, to flex a gift to gab. And I feel like we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in, in terms of what he's actually done in the cage. That's all. And I understand why we're doing it. I'm just saying that's what we're doing. Okay. I'm not saying we're not doing that, but I think that this is, I mean, you look at where Chael Sonnen got. On, you know, being able to do some of those same things and not necessarily looking as good when doing them actually when he got in the cage, you know, I mean, he, he, he out wrestled some people, but he never really was starching people the way Conor McGregor is. So, I mean, I think that if that can work for him. Conor McGregor is at least he's holding up his end of the deal in the fights. Sure, you know? yeah. and, and you can you can make some points about quality of competition so far. But Dustin Boyer is a legit. That's a legit challenge. And he went out there and knocked him out in the first damn round. Uh, I mean, I think that if we want to find out, you know, who's the best fighter in the world, all that stuff, I feel like we don't lose anything by throwing Conor McGregor in there to find out if it's him or if it's him yet. You know, I mean, if he goes in there and Jose Aldo just blows him away or Chad Mendes blows him away, uh, either one, 
I mean, I think that then some of that star power rubs off on them, which they could frankly use, either one of them right about now. I, I don't know if that's – and it won't completely destroy anything that, that Conor McGregor has gotten. I mean, I think that it's the kind of thing where his supporters who have, granted, probably got a little bit ahead of themselves with some of this stuff. Uh, you know, they might be sad if he goes in there and, and he loses the people who – who see all this crazy little Irish guy running around in the suits talking all this mess. Uh, they're going to love it if he gets smashed. Uh, I mean, I think that it's one of those things where there's something for everybody to watch there, and we still do learn something. It's not like a thing of like, hey, we just feel guilty about cashing in on a guy who can talk really well. No, I mean, he can fight. Obviously, the dude can fight. You can look at what he did against Poirier and see that. Let's find out, you know, what the limit is. I mean, he he doesn't seem to be wanting to slow play it at all. Let's throw him in there. Let's find out. Yeah, I understand all that. I just don't know that I would hold up Chael Sonnen as the example, like, of how we want things to go in this sport. But if you make your objections to Chael Sonnen, what would they be? That he didn't, that his actually actual athletic accomplishments did not match up to what he claimed and the opportunities right. that he'd been given. Yeah. And I think that that argument is a little weaker if you try to level it against Conor McGregor. The only thing you can say yet is that, well, he hasn't been here long enough. He hasn't done it against enough different people or enough different styles. But, I mean, that... To a lot of, like, to some extent, that's not his fault. You can't really blame him for that. No, it's not his fault at all. And, and he's done a great job capitalizing on, on every opportunity that he's had. Um, and it may well be that he is the best featherweight fighter in the world. And if he fights the, the winner of Jose Aldo and, and Chad Mendez and he beats that person, then that will be awesome for everyone involved, not just the people that are going to cash the checks at the end of the night, but, if I had to guess, just based on the amount of information that I have at my disposal right now, I would guess that that is going to go terribly for Conor McGregor. Either way it goes, uh, you know, his matchup against Jose Aldo might actually be a little bit more advantageous than his matchup against somebody like Chad Mendez. Uh, and it is weird that, like you said, that he zeroed in on Mendez a little bit more than Aldo. It's a little short ass. As if he's, as if his deja vus are chiming in again to say that, that, you know, Jose Aldo, kind of an injury prone champion. Saying Conor McGregor had a, had a vision. Maybe that he might end up dropping out of this. Uh, but at the same time, uh, if Conor McGregor goes to, to UFC 188 or whatever it would be and beats one of those two guys, color me surprised. That would be, and I would I would think that that was amazing, but I'm given the information I have at my disposal right now, I can't say that I would predict it. Would you say that because you don't think that he is ready for that yet, or because you don't think that he is a good enough fighter with enough skills in the right areas to ever do it? Well, it's, it would be hard to look at a 26-year-old guy and say, I don't think he can ever do it. And clearly, Conor McGregor has has skills for days in the in the stand-up department. Uh, I'm bothered a little bit by his his seeming willingness to get hit. Like, you can punch that guy. Like I said, his, he's not hiding that chin. It's up there for you. And if you go out there and fight Jose Aldo that way, I don't know that that works out well. And having seen the guy stuff exactly zero legitimate double leg takedowns, I think he stopped one takedown by Diego Brandao that was kind of, uh, uh kind of an clin oh shit takedown. clinch cake takedown up against the fence. Like, I can't say that, that a guy who's had three fights in the UFC can beat Chad Mendez when I haven't seen him, him stop a single wrestling takedown. So I'm not saying that Conor McGregor's not the best fighter in the world. I'm just saying like the dossier is incomplete at this point for me to say one way or the other. Yeah, but I think from the UFC's perspective, they're going to look at it and say, well, 
the dossier is not so incomplete that people, when we announce this matchup, will say, oh, come on. You must be joking. What what can this guy possibly do? This guy has no chance. I mean, there's going to be some people who, who who say whether it's Mendez or Aldo who comes out of this one, uh, you know, hey, the, whoever it is will will absolutely smoke this Conor McGregor guy. But those people are still going to watch and watch eagerly. I mean, if you can throw in Demetrius Johnson and Chris Carriasso, you can kind of justify just about anything uh, that you want to do, especially in some of those lighter weight classes. And I think it's a, a fight that really sells, and it's a fight that answers questions one way or another. I, I mean, I can't really complain about it. And you know I would. You know, if it were just something... Oh, I know it, you would. If it were just a cash grab on the UFC's part, then, you know, I, I'd, I'd called him out for that. But I do think that it's an interesting... Uh, matchup at this point. I mean, I think that he's, he's surprised me enough with some of the, some of these recent fights that, hell, let, let's find out, man. I mean, I don't necessarily feel like I need him to go out there and beat a Nick Lentz, uh, just to get to where you know the UFC already wants him to be for those same reasons we've talked about before. Like, you need to make matchups where you can work with whoever wins rather than make a matchup where you think like, okay, well, we think this guy will beat this other guy and then we'll be in a pretty good position. I mean, don't do that. The MMA gods are going to smite us if we try that bullshit. You know, I have no problem seeing him get in there and fight for a title next. Plus, yeah. you know, and if you put him in against a guy like Dennis Bermudez, then you do the thing where, like, you take two guys who look like they could be top contenders and you knock one of them off, where instead you could just have them both fight for the title and take turns. Yeah, all solid points, and I wouldn't complain about it if Conor McGregor does fight for the title. I'll watch that as willingly as anyone else in the world because the guy is super interesting. It just – it always strikes me as a little bit funny in the in this – weird uh fight game that is half sports and half entertainment when it seems like the groundswell of support for a guy uh just so far exceeds what we've actually seen him do so far and that's it always strikes me as a little weird but let's do are you fucking kidding me and then we'll move on to round number two uh ben this week my are you fucking kidding me uh goes out to the ufc for its really sudden about face on gina carano not only about whether or not she's going to end up fighting in the UFC, but also what she's like as a person. Superstar? Since uh, the first time we heard from Dana White after his meeting with Gina Carano, I believe he said that she was like a, one of the sweetest per people you'd ever meet. Just a real a, sweetheart. A sweetheart. How many, a, things, how many times do you think he called her sweetheart? A million. I don't think that the number exists that we could quantify it. Uh, you know, said she was a great person and all this. And then news breaks this week that she's going to film two more movies this year, uh, which would seem to at least delay her arrival in the octagon, if not outright, uh, uh, you know, blasted out of the water. And suddenly Dana White shows up at the press conference and said she's the most difficult person that the UFC has ever dealt with. Are you fucking kidding me? Because before all we heard about what was what a nice person she was. It's starting to seem like. How easy you are to work with, according to the UFC, has a lot to do with whether or not you will do exactly what they want you to do when they want you to do it. How about that? Weird, right? Well, actually, I think he really reserved a lot of his criticism for her her manager, these crazy fucking Hollywood people, as I think he put it, uh, and tried to frame it as if that guy was really stupid, uh, when in fact... Maybe he's smart enough to use the UFC's interest to leverage some movie deals or whatever he's doing for Gina Carano. Maybe, like a lot of us said, she never really wanted to come back, never never seriously wanted to come back anyway. Yeah, that's possible. And you're not going to have to issue that apology to me, which I know you're sweating a lot less this week. Yeah. Let's, no, I, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Well, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Chad, we mentioned earlier Kat Zangano's awesome fight with Amanda Nunes. Uh, Could have very easily been fight of the night. Uh, did not get the $50,000 fight of the night bonus, which is a shame for Kat Zangano because according to the official released payout, 
she made $9,000 to show and another $9,000 to win in her second UFC fight. What? For a total of $18,000 to put on, you know, maybe the best fight on the main card of one of the best pay-per-views we've seen so far this year. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, wow. then maybe you're going to talk some mess about backstage bonuses and you don't know what these people are getting and whatnot, but we know you didn't give her a, a performance bonus. And nine and nine seems like way too little money for somebody who was putting in that kind of work. I mean, John Tuck and Cody Gibson on the prelims each made ten grand to show. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Wow, that's shocking. Pay that woman her money. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, I think that you and I said that we thought that things might get weird in the fight between UL Romero and Tim Kennedy, but man, we had no idea what kind of weird, did we? None. We we weren't we didn't even scratch the surface of no, weird. No. What we were expecting would have been, you know, pretty boring and dull compared to what actually happened after Tim Kennedy punched Rom- Romero in the face, uh, and then you know, okay, Romero goes back to his corner after round two, looking like he has no idea where the hell he is, basically out on his feet. You know, there was a moment there where Big John McCarthy stepped in there, called stop to the round when we heard the horn, where it looked like he might take a look at Romero's vacant eyes and say, you know what, this one's over. Instead, sends him back to his corner, going to give him a chance there. Uh, and boy, did his corner ever... Ever pull out some some crafty fight game moves, which is to say cheating their asses off. Uh, took a really long time in the corner, really long time getting out of there. And lo and behold, when the fight is supposed to be restarted for round three, Romero is still sitting there on his stool. Didn't even take the stool with him, just left it in there for him to sit on like an old man at a coffee shop who has finished his breakfast sandwich, but isn't going to get up and go anywhere because he's got nothing better to do. Uh, and it takes a little less than 30 seconds to finally get that stool out of there, get him back on his feet. Big John McCarthy stopped just short of grabbing him and hauling him up and throwing him into the arms of Tim Kennedy. What the hell, man? What the hell happened here? It was shocking as I watched it on, on TV. I thought that Yoel Romero was going to get disqualified. I thought that he should have been disqualified, according to the to the reading of the rules. Um, and you know what? I'm going to say... I don't think that this would have happened if the Nevada State Athletic Commission hadn't suddenly traded out the, the terrible maroon sport coats that its in-ring officials used to wear in favor of these new weird shiny blue Nike dry fit polo shirts. That's what you're blaming for this? Because if a person in a terrible suit jacket gets in your face and yells at you, you're going to do what that person says. Because that those shoulder pads <laughs> command respect. Some dude, in, an old man in a Nike dry fit polo shirt, that's just going to make me feel like War Machine at the gym, dude. Like, <laughs> that old man's not getting in my face. Are you kidding me? You're going to throw a Slurpee on the floor and yell at that guy. But, yeah, we had no idea how weird this was going to get. Uh, it just certainly appears that Yoel Romero pulled a fast one, as usual. 
the apologists will come out of the woodwork and tell you, well, Tim Kennedy was holding on to his gloves in the round before, so pretty much going to call it even yeah, on this whole penalties on this yeah <laughs> on this whole issue of doing a thing that the rules say you're supposed to be immediately disqualified for doing, which is a weird and frankly classically MMA fan argument to right. make that like this thing that Tim Kennedy did that at worst would get you penalized a point uh if the referee even saw it saw it and decided to do something about it and y'all romero does this thing that's supposed to get you immediately disqualified and no uh actually what it does is earns yoel romero the knockout victory which just goes to prove what's the rule always cheat in mma always Always cheat. That was some. That was some high level Dundaso. Oh, that's, I hadn't even. That's something we had. The master hadn't even considered. Yeah, and that's you know you gotta you gotta put that one on his corner. I mean, they were the ones who uh, really helped make that one work. The the glove grabbing thing. I think you know I saw two different versions of the GIF floating around out there. The one which I consider to be the full GIF is where uh, Kennedy, when he's on the attack there in the closing seconds of round two. He's got wrist control basically on uh, UL Romero. I was grabbing him, grabbing his his right wrist with one hand completely legally and punching him uh, with his right arm. And then as UL Romero tries to kind of pull his arm away and, and pull back, uh, it slips from like a wrist control. And with Kennedy, it looks like he gets some of his fingers there in the the gets the bottom of the glove kind of there where where his wrist is. Uh, and he lands about two punches while his fingers are in there. But I mean, it's not one of those things where he's purposely sinking his fingers into the guy's glove, uh, and using that to hold him there. I mean, it seems like kind of it's in the flow of the action and it was over pretty quickly. It's definitely very different from a, what seems like kind of a premeditated thing on their part. Like, hey, let's buy our guy some time here. When uh, you leave the stool in yes. the cage, <laughs> when you leave, like, yeah, that, that sends a message. Yeah. It's amazing to me, like, how long he was able to get away with it. And it's one of those things where, like, since since MMA is already kind of chaotic, especially in these times between rounds, you can see how guys see the opportunity to exploit that chaos for them. That like, And as we've talked about before, and as Danny Downs and I got into a little bit on, on trading shots, because of the nature of MMA officiating, you know, you, the ref only has a few options, and... One of those options is just calling the whole thing off as soon as you do something you're not supposed to do. And they really don't want to do that because no, they that's know that's a big deal. Yeah. Man. The heat comes down on them. You know, like we've talked about before, you know, it's one of the only sports where like you're constantly in a position where whenever you're called upon as the ref to make a call, that call could just end the entire contest, uh, which just doesn't happen that much in other sports. And so there is a lot of that pressure. And I think that people see that and they realize like, okay, the ref is he doesn't want to do it. he doesn't want to call a TKO or disqualification here. Uh, you can get away with a little more stuff like sit on that stool until he makes you get up. Uh, just kind of betting like that the ref is not going to use all the tools at his disposal and betting correctly. I mean, look how it worked out here. It's kind of amazing how quickly he went from like I'm just gonna sit here, I'm just gonna sit here to like jumping up and smashing Tim Kennedy in the face. Uh, and then, you know, why not go ahead and end the fight by just punching him directly in the back of the damn head? Uh, you know, we're already, we're already there, right? We're already in Thunderdome territory. Might as well do that. Uh, but just kind of like, let's see what we can get away with, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's a shame for Yoel Romero too, because he's this guy that, uh, has just so much potential in this division. And before this Tim Kennedy fight, I went back and watched his previous fight against Brad Tavares 
Because, you know, Yoel Romero had been this kind of developing prospect and clearly comes from this wonderful wrestling background, but, like, had gotten his first few UFC wins while occasionally looking like he had no damn idea what he was doing out there. Like, definitely a work in progress. So I watched the Brad Tavares fight because I wanted to get a better handle and a refresher on what we were dealing with in Yoel Romero. And goddamn, he looked great in that fight. He just looked like it was all coming together for him uh, as an MMA fighter and that, that he was going to be hard to stop. And then he comes out against Tim Kennedy and for the first five minutes looks very much like a dude who would roll in and take the title off anybody. He just looks insanely good for the first seven minutes maybe i mean the first round and the first half of the second round and then the second round things kind of go go poorly there for him toward the end and he kind of slows down a little bit i think cardio is going to continue to be an issue for him and like let's face it gets saved by the bell at the end of the second round he punched my face but then uh has this extra long break before round three and ends up coming out and getting getting the win. At this point, I don't see how you have any option other than than to do a rematch between these two guys. And uh, you know, you, you've already had this delay with Chris Weidman and Vitor Belfort getting pushed back a little bit. You'd like to think Jacare Souza has the inside track to be the next challenger for the middleweight title. So I guess at this point, my my view is like it's kind of a bummer for Yoel Romero because you you know he's an old guy and you hate to see his rise to the top uh, delayed by something like this. But I just don't see any other other option than to have these two guys fight again. Yeah, I'd like to see him do it again, brother. Especially after you see Tim Kennedy kind of livid confronting uh, Yoel Romero backstage and telling him that if you can't get off the stool, the fight ought to be over. It's just kind of hard to argue with. Uh, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind seeing this again. I also wouldn't mind seeing the Athletic Commission come on, take a look at this one and maybe uh, overturn it and t- turn it into a no contest. That seems like something that would be reasonable based on uh, all the questions about what happened there at the end. Also, though, Tim Kennedy seems like he's going to be out for a little while with a, uh, a broken orbital from the sound of it. So, you know, you might have to wait some some time to see that one happen again. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, I guess, to, to move UL Romero forward and up the ranks after something like this because there's so much controversy coming out of that bout. I mean, what do you do? Like, cause Otherwise, you know, if there wasn't for this, if he goes out there and stops Tim Kennedy, a guy who just doesn't get stopped, uh, if he goes out there and knocks that guy out without all this controversy – Man, we'd be sitting here going, look, sounds like we got a new number one contender at middleweight. Yeah. Everybody step back. And I would be, we can't really do that. I would be excited about it because like prior to this incident, there was nothing not to like about Yoel Romero. He's just a crazy person and a a Hulk and comes to the post fight press conferences dressed like an extra from Newsies and, but just seems like on a personal level, like the sweetest guy in the world. Uh, and, and is the, exactly the kind of guy that I think makes an interesting up and comer in the middleweight division. But at this point, he's kind of marred by this, man. And that, that stinks. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate about Tim Kennedy's medical suspension. That could throw a monkey wrench into things, but I feel like you just gotta have these two guys fight again. I think that's the only, that's the only, uh, that's the only option. And maybe you got a little bit lucky that the middleweight title fight is gonna get pushed back. And, and if you want to, you can slot Jacare in there as, as a, as the upcoming opponent for whoever wins that fight. So you got a little time. Maybe the best thing to do is just uh, try to sort this thing out the fair way. But uh, that's going to do it this week for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, 
We waited a long time to see Eddie Alvarez come to the octagon, and I have to be honest with you, it took me about 10 seconds to realize, uh uh-oh, we might be in some trouble here, because that's how long it took Eddie Alvarez to bound out to the middle of the cage, looking every bit like a featherweight against the tall and lanky Donald Cerrone. Eddie Alvarez goes to throw his first jab of his UFC career, ducks his head, and Donald Cerrone fires one of those straight-ahead knees that he likes to do. He's good with those. And just barely misses the guy. And I thought to myself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Now, to Eddie Alvarez's credit, he came back, probably won that first round, uh, because he he really rocked Donald Cerrone there in the clinch. Uh, But then the second and third, it was those knees to the body. It was the kicks to the legs. Uh, it was the straighter, longer punches of Donald Cerrone that really carried the day and, in fact, beat Eddie Alvarez until he literally could not stand anymore. Um, I don't know, man. What do we make from this? Is this just another incident where it proves that UFC debuts are hard to make? Or does this reflect, uh, in a larger sense, about the competition that Eddie Alvarez was fighting over in other organizations? Well, I don't know if we want to extrapolate too much based on one fight and say that this proves that everybody outside the UFC sucks. Because Donald Cerrone is really good. I mean, look at what he's been doing to other UFC lightweights. You could tell that it's not necessarily a mark that you're not ready for the big show if you lose to this guy. Um, you know, one thing before we get too deep into this, I would like to tell you I received an email uh, from a listener named uh, Jeffrey Raining. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, who was at this fight and encountered Eddie Alvarez. So he says, and I, I mean, the email is sincere and, and earnest enough that I have no reason to doubt him, that encountered Eddie Alvarez in the hotel uh, after the fight, uh, looking kind of beat up, walking with a limp, and said he went up there to talk to him and tell him, like, hey, it was a, it was a good fight, you know, sorry I didn't win, uh, and him just describing the the evident disappointment on Eddie Alvarez's face, like just kind of crushed for himself that he that he didn't win and then feeling like that he had let his fans, such as Jeffrey Raining, down uh, and that, you know, there's really nothing you can say to the guy in that moment. Uh, and it also made me think about that look you saw on Dustin Poirier's face after, you know, it's that's those are the moments where I'm reminded why uh, I watch this sport. Right. Because it's like. You feel you're an asshole because you're well, mean. Just like to see guys' dreams crushed. I, I'm always so interested in in the losers of those fights because you know you have to get yourself into this state of supreme confidence and to not dwell on the possibility that you might lose any number of ways and that it might go really bad for you physically and otherwise. You have to be really confident and really positive about the whole thing. To you're absolutely sure you're right. You're sure you're on the right side. You know you're sure that you're a fighter of destiny, and you got these visions and your coincidences and deja vu's all telling you you're going to win. And then you go out there and you lose and lose in a you know somewhat a decisive fashion enough to where you come away thinking, man, how is this possible? How could I be wrong about this? Uh, and like that, that is such a just a like raw emotional moment yeah uh and you could see it on on eddie alvarez uh on on his face after that fight um and man i mean that's the the human drama that i think you get out of the fight game that you don't really get in other sports yeah i totally agree with you that's that's one of the things that makes this sport so compelling compelling and and like you can just think you talked about dustin poirier but you could just think about on this one night we saw this like the searing raw emotion of cat zingano uh, coming back from everything that she's been through and getting that win, uh, which you could argue, I think was the, the, like, the, the most emotional 
performance of the night. And then you get Eddie Alvarez, who it was totally sad to watch him, to watch this fight kind of slip away from him, from him the way that it did after such a strong start because he had had this like near two year long struggle to free himself from the, the old regime at Bellator and come over and get this fight. And so it was totally sad and, and, and crushing to watch him like get beat pretty bad by, by Donald Cerrone, who you're right is a very accomplished lightweight fighter in the UFC division at this point. And frankly, a guy who is so busy, so active and has been so hot lately that in retrospect, that seems like a tough draw for a guy to come in and make his octagon debut against a guy who like basically has made that his, his personal playground over the last uh, couple of years. And I don't like the thing where we see a guy from another organization come in and lose and say that that reflects poorly on the, the like the all of the competition outside the UFC, even though it was proclaimed that Eddie Alvarez, some people say the last great free agent to get signed to the UFC uh, was that was said on the, on the pay-per-view broadcast in this instant though. No more. There's no more. They're all gone. There's no more free agents out there at all from what I, from what I can hear. Uh, in this instance, though, I did come away from this fight wondering if Eddie Alvarez's 11-year trek through all of these other smaller organizations did conceal some holes in his game because not not only did he look small in this fight, but he looked kind of one-dimensional. He looked like he just wanted to go out there and box, and he's a really good boxer. He's really quick. He has good footwork, uh, and, 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 you know, he won that first round, but at the same time, uh, Donald Cerrone, I felt, was kind of able to find some weaknesses in Eddie Alvarez and, and control the distance with his, his superior length and his, his more diversified striking game. Uh, and, and I walked away from this fight feeling like, A, Eddie Alvarez is really good. I think when it's all said and done, he can, he has the tools to be a top 10 fighter in, in MMA's most competitive weight class. But I also feel like he needs to supplement the game a little bit to, to go into that shark tank and fight those guys where you're going to be just fighting straight up killers every time in the UFC lightweight division. And I feel like he might need to go back to the drawing board a little bit because I just didn't see, uh, enough, a diverse enough attack really. I thought Donald Cerrone was able to use his, his skills to kind of control most of this fight. Well, that could be. I mean, but then again, you know, what would you do against Donald Cerrone? What's what's the the attack you think would stand the the best chance of beating a guy like that? I mean, if you're Eddie Alvarez, if you're built like Eddie Alvarez and you have his skills, I would say what he was trying to do in the first round would be the thing that I would think is is the way to go is to try to get in there close against Donald Cerrone, see if you can muscle him around a little bit and beat him up in the clinch. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily know if you want to commit yourself to trying to take him down and beat him on the ground. I mean, he's got a pretty good submissions game off his back, and he's tough to take down and keep there. You definitely don't want to fight him at that kind of kicking distance uh, if you're Eddie Alvarez because he's just got a better kicking game than you do. Uh, and you don't want to be out at a distance and trying to charge in because, like you said, he's going to throw that knee straight up the middle on you, and he's pretty good at catching guys coming in with that. Uh, and kind of work you to the body and work you to the head with those kind of things. So, I mean, I don't necessarily know what you can say that Eddie Alvarez made a bunch of game plan mistakes in this. It seemed like Cerrone adjusted to his game plan pretty well. Like like you said, I think that Eddie Alvarez wins that first round, and then Donald Cerrone figures out how to go out there and beat him in rounds two and three, and he just goes to work on that leg. Uh, and like we've seen happen to other guys, when somebody who is really good starts picking apart your leg, you don't have as many of those in you as you sometimes think. You might think like, hey, I can take a few of these and still come back, but 
you know, next thing you know, by the time you realize you're wrong, it's too late. You know, you don't really have the use of that leg the way you need to. Uh, I think that's kind of what happened here. But I don't, I mean, again, first fight in the UFC, there was a lot of pressure on him coming into this one, and it's a tough, tough fight. You know, I, I wouldn't say, well, that closes the book on Eddie Alvarez by any means. I mean, he could definitely still uh, retool and come back. And who knows, maybe he figures out that he'd be better off featherweight in the UFC. Yeah, and uh, he's only, what, 30 years old, I think. Something yep, like that. 30 years old. Uh, so he's got a lot of his athletic prime left. Uh, he's He's been great everywhere else he's ever been. So like I said, you do have some confidence that he'll be able to uh, regroup a little bit and end up being uh, at least a top 10 guy in this in either this weight class or, you know, it's, it's a little bit idle talk to talk about him going down to featherweight. But it, it, it left me feeling a little bit like when we saw Jim Miller try to fight Donald Cerrone that, that, you know, the moment they came out of their two corners, they just looked like guys and frankly guys in different weight classes uh and and you know we don't know what eddie alvarez's cut is like or what it would take for him to get down to featherweight or anything like that but he sure did look uh outsized in this bout in, in addition to like uh having the 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 more uh one one-sided game plan i guess the the excerpt from uh jeffrey Raining's email that i would like to read to you oh let's and let's stress unconfirmed reports unconfirmed reports uh but Sounds believable enough to me. Says he was staying at the MGM and went out of his room to get ice and saw five dudes wearing green shirts walking toward him. As I got closer, I noticed a significant limp on one of them, and holy shit, it was Eddie Alvarez. Uh, and here's where he talks about his kind of interaction with him. It was just an extremely sobering moment for me as a fan of not only him, but of the sport in general. I suppose it was fitting, because it was the first UFC event I've ever gone to, that my perception of everything has changed. It makes me realize just how badly all these fighters want to win, and as a guy who just watches it on TV, other than Saturday, I also realize I have no right to judge any fighter who steps into that cage and is determined to win, because it is harder than anything I've ever tried to do. I now know what that shame and disappointment looks like after a guy loses. To a guy who is used to winning, losing is the worst thing that could happen. But to a guy like me who never understood why these fighters practically kill themselves to win and sometimes end up losing, I have nothing but respect. Wow. Well, that's a very nice email. Yes, it is. Thoughtful. Yeah. Well, too bad he sent that to you. I know. Should have sent that to someone who would appreciate it. Well, he said he was going to you know, send it to, to the, the CME, but uh, you know, ran out of characters in the email and didn't really have realized he didn't really have a question so much as just wanted to relay that experience. And I'm glad he did. I mean, I think that that's, that's some of the stuff like it's easy sometimes. And we get accused sometimes of being too negative uh, about the sport or about the UFC. And it's easy sometimes when you're used to like dealing with the UFC and sometimes it feels like you're constantly having to, to parse the, the press statements of like a dictator or something to try to look for the truth in there. Uh, and it, sometimes it can get, it can wear on you a little bit. Uh, and then you remember, oh yeah, this, the actual stuff that happens in the sport, the people who are act, the actual fighters and actually getting in there and doing the work, that's why you watch this stuff. Agreed. Let's do just saying stuff because, you know, on that same note, uh, Ben, this week I did want to send a positive just saying stuff out to the UFC because, uh, it seemed to me that somehow, some way, maybe against all odds, the company managed to navigate that Cat Zingano, uh, comeback fight against Amanda, Amanda Nunez. Uh, without in you know in some way acting as embarrassing as we've seen the company act about its female fighters in the past, especially considering all the the 
the tragedy and adversity that, that Kat Zingano had been through in the last 18 months. Uh, in this bout, they played it pretty much super straight, uh, and managed to basically treat both of them like two athletes competing over a title shot. And, and even Joe Rogan managed to kind of navigate Kat Zingano's knee injury and her husband's suicide in, in the, in the post fight interview in a way that felt natural, but didn't feel, uh, exploitive and, and didn't feel, uh, I guess lame for lack of a better word. Like I thought it, it all, it all came off on very much the right note. So I guess this week I'm just saying good job UFC. Hopefully this is the result of a company wide uh, memo about how they, they ought to treat their female athletes. Yeah. Just saying, just saying, well, Chad, I'm just saying, you know, I'm looking at the MMA junkie homepage right now and we have a little sidebar on there where we tell you what's popular now. What's what are the most clicked on stories uh, at the moment. Um, here, I'm just going to read the headlines of all the popular now stories on the website as it appears right now on Monday afternoon. UFC boss, Conor McGregor bigger than Brock Lesnar, George St. Pierre. UFC 178's Conor McGregor, he said what? Post-fight edition. UFC 178, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier fight video highlights. Twitter reacts to Conor McGregor's knockout of Dustin Poirier. UFC 178 results photos, Conor McGregor stops Dustin Poirier. Uh, then UFC 178 play-by-play, then finally, video, watch Conor McGregor's fans celebrate his UFC 178 win over Poirier, which our guy Matt Erickson ran out onto the arena concourse to shoot. I don't know if you've seen, but a bunch of Irish people going crazy. I'm just saying, that's a guy who might have a future in this pro-fighting stuff. Whether you think he goes in there and beats Jose Aldo or Chad Mendes or whoever is the UFC featherweight champion, whether you think he's even deserving of that shot right now, people are paying attention to this kid. I'm just saying. Just saying. Those are some good clickbait headlines, too. Thank you. Could put in Brock Lesnar and George St. Pierre in there just for your SEO. Uh, well, that's going to do it this week for the co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at uh, the UFC event this weekend. Two of them, right? Oh, good. So oh, we'll, good. we'll be talking about that. As for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. Did you make that up about two UFCs this weekend, or is that actually happening? No, I'm pretty sure October 4th. That's this coming weekend, right? So we're doing, uh, Dana White just tweeted about it today. It's, uh, Tarek Safadine is involved somehow. I'm just, just going off the, the top of my head here. Uh, maybe Rick Story might be fighting somebody. That's right. Rick Story is fighting your guy, Gunny Nelson. Oh, yeah. That's this weekend, huh? Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm surprised I didn't have that one circled on my calendar. Well, maybe it's because no one can keep track of it. That's probably, probably why. <laughs>